I can yeah. sit back. Yeah, okay. now you can sit back. Yeah, now you can. there we go. Relax. Yeah. What are you going to be uh, teaching this uh, coming semester slash quarter? I don't know what. It's going. semesters, but I'm not teaching anything. Oh, you're just researching. Yeah, for the. I mean, I will teach eventually, but I don't have anything in my load. Nice for the fall. I know. I'm so excited. So I'm just going to be reading things that I haven't had time to read that I should be reading. Um, is this kind of like a pre-sabbatical? Because you just you just moved colleges. This is an odd way for well, you to. Well, so my my job is um, I'm at an institute at the university. So my primary job is to support the mission of the institute, and they have a lot of programming that they do. Um, and then there there are both professors and non-professor staff people who work for the Institute. Um, and the professors usually teach like a course a semester in their various disciplines. And mm-hmm. so eventually I'll be doing that. Mm-hmm. But right now I just don't have to do that yet. Okay. So they're, yeah. they're giving me kind of time to settle in and figure out what my, what my job is exactly. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With all the phone books behind you. <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is such a not a fun. I no, could it's fine. It's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. I, there's you, like a bookshelf. I could have books behind me like you do and look like a real professor. <laughs> I don't care, honestly. That's fine. But, okay. what, what is the telos of this institute? Oh, that, glad you asked. So its mission is to connect the resources of the academy with the church as a whole. So they do a lot of public engagement. They run a journal called the Church Life Journal, which I highly recommend um, it's, it's got great stuff. Um, and it's online and it has a really high, high readership as well. Um, so that's one thing they do. They, um, but what run are the very... resources that they are sharing? These <laughs> highly uh, refined Catholic minds. Is that what <laughs> Yeah, basically. I think it's like, you know, what, what are, how can Catholic academ- academics, actually help people outside the ivory tower okay you know so rather than just oh here's my presentation i'm giving to other academics or here's my article that 10 other academics will read that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. the idea is that you know higher education is really important there's a lot of in-depth learning that happens but that learning only really matters insofar as it actually helps the the broader church and not just the academy so. so out of the tower into the streets Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And that suits me well, because I like to write for a broader audience. You know, I don't particularly um, like to just do capital S scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the Academy broadly construed owes part of its existence and part of its form to the church. Specifically That's the correct. Catholic Church. I don't That's know correct. the academic legacy of, let's say, the East, the Byzantine or the um, the Greek Orthodox, but mm-hmm. I do know that Catholicism in the West, monasteries, mm-hmm. and a lot of the formal stuff and the yeah. pomp and circumstance actually can trace etymologically back to you know, the form that was enshrined within the Church. So, Yeah, totally. The, I mean, it, yep. Now that the academy went secular, and then mm-hmm. it, there was this magic secular period, and now it's gone uh, evangelical with what we call wokeness or whatever 
that stuff is. I don't know your preferred language for that. It's nice that you guys are also kind of doing that, um, kind of putting the academy rubber meets the road kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so how does the church benefit from scholarship? Uh, well, or how does the, the, the hmm. normie, I guess the normie <laughs> parishioner, is that the right term for? A- yeah. So yeah, a parishioner would be like someone in the parish. So for example, the Institute also does a lot of um, kind of de- like faculty development work for Catholic educators. So in that way, it helps Catholics strengthen Catholic schools. It, yeah. You know, by um, so for example, there's like a science and religion initiative that McGrath does. And I was involved in that for the last couple of weeks. And you would have science educators from all over the United States coming for like a week long seminar experience where they're getting a lot of amazing content. They're also actually doing kind of lab work together, you know, and so they're, they're becoming better teachers um, and they're here at Notre Dame and getting, you know, so that's, that's some of the stuff that we do. Um, But I mean, basically like, so when I think of how I might fit into this, right. Like I have this, this background in women's and gender studies. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that world. Um, and so I guess I see what I can do is to basically be a bridge between that world and the general person, right. Who's, you know, maybe, a, maybe a Catholic school teacher who's trying to figure out, like, I don't really know how to you know, navigate all this new gender stuff in my classroom or um, why is, you know, what are the roots of this happening? Right. So I think, I think our, our kind of our polarized culture, there's so much reactionary stuff happening, right. People responding reactively to things. And um, so I'm hoping that my work can bring some of the I guess the the insider knowledge that I have in order to help people understand and navigate what's going on a little bit better. Um, Because I I do think that what's happening with gender is happening so rapidly and it's so confusing. There's so much linguistic confusion, first of all. So it's very hard to navigate. And so I just kind of want to empower parents and teachers and people with a little bit more of a grasp of kind of what the landscape is. And Mm -hmm. so say when they have a kid who comes up and says, you know, I think I'm trans, they're not going to be like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do, you know, but rather like, Oh, wow. Okay. Like I kind of maybe have a sense of how to respond in a, um, in a non-panicked way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Anyway. So that's kind of my hope. That's what I want to do is to, to do some kind of bridge building work. We'll see. I'm just thinking of like a Catholic schoolgirl, um, preteen, teen, um, who is in this environment, the Catholic environment, which is very, there is a gender, it's a gendered space. It's a gendered <laughs> institution. Right. Yeah. From the very top to the, you know, to, to the ground. And um, some, some young girl like seeing that and then, navigating all these expectations and this formality that's put on her and then also uh, emerging sexuality from within and then also mm-hmm. sexual attention from without. And then there's this gender stuff that gets to allow her to obfuscate and, mm-hmm. and, and, and separate and disassociate and then deal with other 
kind of issues. And I'm wondering, have you meditated on that? And I do have to plug your book because it's phenomenal. The Genesis of Gender. (laughs) I didn't get to finish it. I'm on the gender chapter, but there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you Mm -hmm. about with it. Okay. I just wanted to like root the conversation maybe in like practicality of Mm -hmm. this imaginary Catholic schoolgirl who Mm -hmm. discovers gender ideology and Mm -hmm. how would the church or a representative of the church talk her down from that ledge or give Mm -hmm. her insight into how the church uh, uses gender from the highest to the lowest? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. So I, I feel very comfortable in the kind of theological and philosophical analysis of this stuff. And when it comes to the practical relational, where the most important work happens, you know, that's something I want to actively really understand better, you know, and I've, Mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of your interviews that you have with people that I think are so helpful. I've been listening to um, Stella O'Malley and uh, Sasha. I can't remember. Sasha. Sasha. Yes, yeah. of course. Um, you know, I think that's a wonderful resource, their approach. So, um, and well, you, you can, yeah. you can speak philosophically and then I can translate that because I'm, I'm in, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I do, I do think like, I mean, what, what I think is happening is that, a wide range of adolescent experiences and distress are being funneled into this kind of sausage factory that makes it about one thing and offers one simplistic solution. Right. So I think the first response to, you know, a a gender questioning teen is curiosity, you know, trying to figure out just to ask real questions about, Oh, wow. Do you tell me more about that? Like what, tell me more about your experience. And um, when did you begin thinking this way? And when you use this term, what do you mean by it? You know, just trying to kind of understand um, what's happening. And, and I think especially being attentive to the desires that there, there are a wide range of very good and real desires that could be pulling a young person toward um, what I call the gender paradigm, or, you know, some people call it gender ideology. You know, it could be a, longing for community. It could be a longing um, for oneness with their body, for feeling that kind of body soul integration that, you know, as a Catholic, that's kind of our anthropology, our view of the human person. Mm. So a longing for that feeling of incarnation. Um, So these are all really good things, you know, but I think the problem is that the gender paradigm is it, it, it plays on those desires without actually being able to fulfill them and to truly meet them. Right. So I think being curious, paying attention to desire. And I also think in Catholic spaces as well as elsewhere, but since we're talking about Catholic spaces like schools, I think it's really important to be, to articulate a positive vision of both masculinity and femininity, because I think right now we have, really unpleasant narratives about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman in our culture. Like I've been struck by some of the the male detransitioners that you've been interviewing recently that talk about how, you know, being a white male, like a predatory white male is like the worst thing you could possibly be. And just wanting to kind of opt out of that. Right. Like, so there's this narrative about what it means to be a man. That's, that's fundamentally negative. Mm. Um, and, you know, how, how can you kind of go through puberty, right? Become, how could you go through that process of becoming a man without a positive vision of what that could look like? And then the flip side of that, I think, is that um, for women, what, 
for young women, like what it means to be a woman increasingly looks like this kind of hypersexualized, you know, pornified sex object. Right. And I think so many young people are exposed to pornography so early that, that I think that we had these like pornified narratives about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Hmm. And so I think we need to have positive articulations of yeah. manhood and womanhood that are also very um, roomy that have like, are very capacious that have room for diversity among women, diversity among men Yeah, um, that aren't these like cookie cutter, you know, like Barbie Ken kind of garbage. So I think that in, in a Catholic space, the, yeah the saints like the motley crew of all the different kinds of saints we have who are almost all of them are super weird and countercultural yeah. and, yeah, and you die know, horrifically too you know they die, you've, you've got these like you know kind of gentle beggar men you've mm. got like joan of arc and hildegard of bingen right so you have so many saints who are you know gender Roman non-conforming models. so to speak yeah okay. who basically are like showing that what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman can look differently as long as, I mean, that the, the most important thing is that we're, you know, we're following the call to like give and receive love. And like, there's a way that men embody that and that women embody that just because of the kinds of beings we are that might be different. But so I think that's something that that's a resource that Catholic schools could draw upon just having a lot of different kinds of female role models um, for women and a lot of different kinds of role models for men so that no matter what the kind of personality or how gender typical they are or are not, they still feel like there's a place here for me. And I don't need to, I don't need to reject my sex because I, I see how I can be a man here. I see how I can be a woman here. Yeah. In, in your, in your book and you draw upon one theme that I'm getting or one source that I'm getting is John Paul II's work on, um, on, on this area that he Mm -hmm. published a few decades ago. Um, Mm -hmm. he was the Pope before the, he's like two popes ago. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he he was a long Pope too. (laughs) Long Pope. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, a long time. Um, so he died in 2005. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when he exactly he, yeah. his work seems very prescient about um, speaking about the body and mm-hmm. sex and the purpose of that. And um, it's very attractive. There's this uh, I just found today. You mentioned something called personalism or personism. Mm-hmm. And I actually looked into one of the founders of that. And he, he actually, one of the guys, I can never, it's some German dude, Brecht or something like that. Some German dude. It's always yeah. a German dude. Scheller. Scheller. <laughs> but he influenced, he influenced all of phenomenology and he mm-hmm. based everything on this con- concept of love and, mm-hmm. Um, when you bring up one way that you try to bridge this gap with gender, um, is, and, and you talk about feminism, you talk about, um, the way that feminism has tried to conceptualize the female and there's this current of liberalism that is kind of atomizing us. But what you say are some very, they're rich concepts, there's this body soul thing that's integrated. Like we are Mm -hmm. every single one of us is actually an incarnation of a human or the incarnation Mm -hmm. of the soul. So there is this physical body, but the physical body is always representing a a Mm -hmm. spiritual reality, which it, and that language is not 
salient for a lot of materialists mm-hmm. or uh, sure yeah so yeah. how do you, how do we uh broaden that or deepen that understanding hmm. of um the body and the soul and how that mm-hmm. can actually help us with the sexedness of our bodies which i think is just kind of a mystery and something mm-hmm. that we're always going to be fascinated with and are always going to have to negotiate um mm-hmm. because it's so personal and so universal at the same time yeah 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 john paul ii in the i think in the late 70s had a series of homilies um that he gave on what's now called the now it's kind of the collection the collection of these homilies is called the theology of the body mm. but they're they're really these really rich theological and philosophical meditations on passages of scripture so like genesis song of songs some of the gospels these things parts of scripture that deal very explicitly with the body and especially our sexual nature so some of the some of the things he highlights in in the theology of the body is the sacramentality of the body so basically the body there's like our there's our personhood or kind of our spiritual personhood that um is only able to be kind of accessed or revealed to other people through the frame of our embodiment right so this the idea the way he puts it is like the body reveals the person so and it's always doing that right um and i think there's something interesting that hmm. uh you kind of have that that idea in a slightly twisted form i think in some in some trans narratives or, or at least a desire for that like a desire for the body to reveal the person like my body doesn't reveal my person and so i need to change my body in order for it to really reveal who i am so I think the desire for that and the longing for that is a very real, almost this kind of desire for that sacramentality, right? But I think the, I think mm. the mistake is in, is in not realizing that your your body doesn't have to be changed to do that. It's not something you do. It's something that your body is always doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's definitely this I think um, high regard for embodiment. Uh, which I think a lot of people, you know, who who aren't Christian, you know, have a perception of Christianity as being very anti-body and dualist and da, da, da. And certainly there have been many iterations of, yeah. and forms of Christianity where that's been the case. But I think certainly in um, in Catholic Christianity and theology, the body really matters. And it matters on kind of all levels because you've got you've got these central mysteries of the faith, like the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection, but then you also have sacramental worship, like the Catholic view of the Eucharist. You know, we really think like we're eating Jesus's body (laughs) when we go to mass. Right. So we're, we're taking that, that divine body into our own body. And that is, is causing a very real process of transformation or divinization. Hmm. Um, Theosis, you know, it's, it's, it's given different theological names, but so the body really matters. Um, the body is not, yeah. That, and and every human being is a unity of body and soul. Um, so you, it's not this like ghost in the machine kind of idea. Which uh, it's funny, guys. I, I taught at a Christian school for for over a decade, but a lot of my students who were raised in various forms of Christianity had a, a pretty gnostic idea that. Like, oh, well, when we die and go to heaven, it's just like, we're like these little Casper ghosts or something up there, you know? And I'm like, what about the resurrection, you know? Like for for yeah, Christians, well, like, what about the resurrection? You know, bodies matter. Well, I mean, for, for Christian, for in Christian theology, 
you know, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Like, so there will be a time when, um, so like at death, like basically what death is, is the separation of um, body and soul. And that's what kind of destroys an organism, right? Because that's, Hmm. that's death. That's what's destructive is that separation. And so the belief in the resurrection is that um, eventually there will be a restoration, there are a, reun- a reunion of the soul with the body, and that the soul without the body is like an unnatural kind of state for it, oh. or an incomplete state for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Bernard of Clairvaux, this um, medieval um, theologian monk guy, he he has these amazing writings on love, but one of the things he he talks about is that the soul like that the soul that's waiting for its body is like is longing for its body like even though it's in a state of bliss in the beatific vision like the soul is longing for reunion with its body Hmm. Um, because that's that's what it means to be a human being right human beings aren't body bodiless souls where um or body soul unities i -hmm. guess we are our bodies yeah and they matter there's a crossover here and maybe maybe we should ground the conversation in, in some sort of biography of you and how you mm-hmm. got into one. I know you wrote a book about your faith and, and mm-hmm. going Catholic, <laughs> um, but you also have a journey with feminism mm-hmm. and going feminism and then working outside of that. And it's really fascinating because there's one, one of the, um, reasons I got into this entire gender debate was because it's the same, the same stuff that's happening with like race is happening in gender, but gender's a little bit more important to me than race. Race is kind of just mm-hmm. stupid, but the same sort of political um, thrust, postmodernism and activism and like weird, strange kind of reconfigurations of Marxism are active across all gender and race and not so much class because that, confuses the powers that be um but which is ironic right like how unmarxist how unmarxist of you <laughs> yeah yeah these boutique beliefs um but still w- with gender what you see especially in middle class affluent young folk right now they're ingesting these ideas about gender and becoming really confused and they're already dissociated from their body by our modern world and Mm-hmm. Kind of, there's something about liberalism and the assumptions of liberalism that do lead to a path of kind of separation and disapparation and fragmentation. And gender's very personal when when it happens yeah. in gender, mm-hmm. societally with race and other kind of class dynamics or group dynamics is very destructive for the body politic. But gender actually is destructive to the the body mm-hmm. person. So. Um, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why Catholicism? What was that thread? Oh man, such a weird story. Yeah. Um, so I, so I, I was raised an evangelical Protestant in the 
Western United States. So I kind of grew up inside an evangelical bubble, inside like a 90s, Mormon bubble. 80, 90s? 2000s. I was born in 80, 83. Okay. Yeah. So I grew, yeah, I would have been in the 90s. Um, Youth grouper go on like, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I had kind of like a, a little bit of a, a sad experience <laughs> because I also lived in these small Mormon towns. So there wasn't a lot of us. So yeah. I, you know, it was, I, you know, I never had the like mega church experience or like the huge youth group kind of thing. Like, um, uh, but so I think in that, uh, that upbringing, um, there, there are kind of weird narratives about, um, gender, right? So there's, it's not clear that there's much of a role for women in the church to do anything except kind of you know, set up the potluck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, set up the potluck, you know, and be a wife and a mother. There's this expectation that everyone will get married. And if you don't, you're just sad. Um, and that that's kind of the the best the best option for women. That's the goal. Um, and I think that and there are certain parts of my personality that are like that are feminine and some that aren't, you know, I think, especially as a young person, I was really sporty, sporty spice, kind of a jock, um, competitive, you know, I, I had these traits that didn't seem to fit the evangelical understanding of femininity. And so I think that kind of raised questions of gender in my head from an early age. So then I went to college, I went to an evangelical school. Um, Pardon me, asking or interrupting, was there a reality to your faith? Like, you know, I know, like, socially, maybe it just Mm -hmm. didn't fit in that, but was there like a reality? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think there was there was a sincere sense of faith. I mean, I think it was... It, it wasn't very examined. I mean, which makes sense. I mean, just developmentally, right. Mm-hmm. You kind of grow up, but I did have, I think, I think my whole life I've had an attentiveness to the noumenal world, I guess, and mm-hmm. a sense of, of spirituality and a sense of God. Um, and I don't think I've ever lost that, even though that's taken different forms over the years. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of, you know, when I was a teenager, I kind of did the like, you know, like mess around and like rebel and then like come back to Jesus in the summer when you go on like the little <laughs> mission trip, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And then I was like, oh, I've been so bad, you know, I promise Jesus it won't happen again. You know, I'd get like rebaptized constantly, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went to college and um, that's, you know, in college is when, I think for me, questions of identity and purpose and the future become pressing. And, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I encountered feminist theology and feminist biblical criticism. And it really appealed to me because I thought, oh, this is what I've been looking for. You know, I've, I really wanted a sense of a richer sense of like, what does it mean to be a woman? What does that look like? And, and to have that, that dignity um, of my womanhood be affirmed in a, in a real way. And, and so I thought, yes, feminism will provide this. And there are different strains of feminism. There's feminisms, yes. as you say, and mm-hmm. as I've said, right. um, and one, I could see how one section of it is critical of the, mm-hmm. uh, denigration of women throughout various traditions and stuff. So there yeah. can be an empowerment that's linked directly to being against 
yes. stuff, which is which is liberatory up to a point. Um, so, did was that attractive to you? That kind of. So initially, I think there are kind of two two sort of phase two waves, if you will. I'm just kidding <laughs> of my <laughs> of my of my feminist undergrad years. But um, the first one, I think I was very much an evangelical feminist or like an egalitarian feminist, right? So my approach was, oh well, you know, I still took scripture seriously. I still had like a sense of, you know, God is real and Jesus is real and Jesus saves. And um, we just need to, we, the Bible matters. We just need to learn to interpret it correctly. So it was much more hermeneutical. It was like, let's look at this tricky passage about women not speaking in church. Like, what are the Greek words? What does that really mean? What's the context, right? So doing that kind of making hermeneutical arguments um, for kind of an egalitarian feminist position. But then eventually a shift happened where I think I adopted much more the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? Which is, I think what you were describing, which is much more like, no, actually we shouldn't take the Bible seriously because it's a patriarchal text. It was written by men. Mm. It's demeaning to women. Our very concept of God is patriarchal and demeaning to women. We should avoid masculine language for God. So basically this, this deep seated kind of suspicion toward Christianity as a whole, toward the tradition, toward scripture, toward theology, toward language, you know. Um, And so I think that when that shift happened, I think what I think what happens when you adopt a hermeneutics of suspicion toward a religion is that it pushes you outside the religion, really, because you can't. So so much of I think the religious sensibility is a disposition of trust and of surrender, you know, and reliance upon something greater than yourself. That doesn't have to be an unthinking kind of trust, but nonetheless trust. And so I think when I began to be suspicious in this kind of writ large way, I no longer really trusted um, anything when it came to Christianity, except myself. I trusted myself. (laughs) And your rationality, your tools and and Yeah, just, you know, I just knew everything, you know, like, (laughs) like, oh, I'm super smart and I'm like 20, you know, I have a college degree. Like I can, I can read the Bible and know what, you know, what it really Mm. means anyway. Sorry. I'm I'm being a little uncharitable to myself, you know, but there is something about the kind of, you know, the hubris of being like 20 years old and thinking like, oh, I've, you know, I've now assessed this 2000 year old tradition and decided that it's garbage, you know, without really studying it in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so then I went on to, so I got an undergrad degree in philosophy and I got really interested in feminist philosophy and then I um, was also interested in literary studies. I just love everything. I can't decide. So I went on in graduate school. You're and perfect, fertile ground for postmodernism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Philosophy and yes. literature. And, and by the time suspicion. I graduated from college, I was a thoroughgoing postmodernism, right? Postmodernist. So I still considered myself a Christian, but in the sense that, well, Christian, there's, there are many different narratives and Christianity is one of many, but I think it's the, mo- you know, the most compelling one to kind of try to understand reality, hmm. but everything's metaphorical. So yeah. um, I didn't have a sense of, I mean, that's, what's interesting about Christianity is it makes some very like real historical claims that like you kind of have to reckon with like, and either be on board or not. Right. So I was like, it kind of sweeping that aside a little bit and being like, yeah, like incarnation, resurrection, those are beautiful concepts that we can like think theoretically about blah, blah, blah. 
which is great. It's great headspace to be in when you're in graduate school because that's all you're doing all the time, right? You're like, let me take a theoretical lens mm. and like read a text through this lens. Um, so that's what I was doing with feminist theory and gender theory. So I did a I did a master's in women writing and gender. My PhD is in English, um, but it's all in. Um, French feminist philosophy yeah. applied to contemporary women's novels. Irrigure. Um, Irrigure. Yes. Loose. Irrigure. Loose. Well, I mean, you should say it, Irrigure. But who has time for that? <laughs> who has time for that? Like, that's she, too hard. You know, so I, I spoke so with I the, say Irrigure, even though I know that's Irrigure. the crass American way of saying it. Yes. Is she the. <laughs> is she the um, I don't know. There's this, I'm really sorry to go here, but it, it just keeps on occurring when I speak about feminism, but like, there's this obsession with the vulva and like, like deifying it and stuff. And I think that Irigiri did a lot of like the theoretical work about making the ways of being, there's just, there's a very, and I think you mentioned this in your book. Um, she's, her writing is trying to bring a sensuality to, to conceptuality mm -hmm. and you know there's a lot of like mucosal yes. and you know there's like slugly things going on in her language and stuff so it's very like it sounds like she's trying to be like trying to be very vaginal whereas the, as opposed to the male the the phallic masculine hetero way of thought i'm just wondering if that's a yeah so, yeah, so I think French, when I say French feminism, obviously there's a huge range, but when I'm talking about kind of the big three, like Hélène Sixou, Lucie Rigoré, and Julia Kristeva, and I focused mainly on a Rigoré. But yes, I think and these are postmodernist, uh, 80s, 90s, yes, uh, so yeah, thinkers, yeah, yeah. post-structuralist, post yeah. So, post-structuralist, um, okay. they let's see, so especially in Sixou and a Rigoré, there very much is this high regard for the body and the way that um, just having a female body will change your experience of the world and maybe even the things that you value. Um, there is a, an often anthologized essay by Arigure. I think it's called like when our lips speak together or something like that, which I think is often interpreted as just being about the vulva, but actually I think she's doing something more complex there, but um, doing something yeah. more complex there. She's French. Yes, exactly. Right. So um yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I like a regret. I still do. Uh, well, and why? And, yeah. because of the poetic or because of the, like, what, what's so the content? Her, her main argument, her yeah. main argument is that we, our culture has never really seriously conceptualized sexual difference. Yeah. What has happened, we, we essentially have a monoculture where you have everything that's kind of centered on this masculine ideal. Yeah. And then the feminine is almost this like weird kind of shadow mirror image of that. Mm -hmm. So she was saying like, we, we need to begin to think not in terms of one, but of two and to have, to really develop, you know, um, a feminine subjectivity or a subjectivity in the feminine as she kind of describes it, that might not look like a subjectivity in the masculine. So she's, she sees sexual difference as both real and positive, but also still not fully realized in the sense of our mm. kind of philosophical imagination. Hmm. And so I, I think as a feminist, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to, I was supposed to hate essentialism, right. That's like this cardinal sin as a feminist. I always had a sense of like, yeah, men, men and women are different. Like it, it's different to be a woman than it is to be a man, you know? And it's also, cool to be a woman and there are parts that are hard but 
I like it, you know, I like being a woman. And I, um, I wanted to understand that more, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, I like that Ariga Ray took sexual difference seriously while also realizing the ways in which our culture has interpreted sexual difference in simplistic, sometimes misogynist ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it, yeah, it it's, it's, sounds yeah. like her project was a positive move toward the mm-hmm. feminism rather than just a right. suspicious move away from the masculine. Yep. Yep. And, yes. and, and, um, so, so there's that, but also a non Butlerian, I'm just going to destroy the entire thing. Yes, exactly. exactly. Uh, she's not post-structuralist in terms of everything's now deconstructed no. infinitely. Okay. No, no, because she, she takes the body seriously. She also has a psychoanalytic streak, which, you know, sometimes that stuff can go a little bit, you know, a little wild, but the nice thing about psychoanalysis is that it takes embodiment and developmental, yeah. you know, developmental, like embodied developmental experiences seriously, which I think really matter. Um, and what was yeah. your reaction to Butler coming across Butler in your, in your, um, in your formative? Okay, so let me see if I can remember years. my first time reading. I think I first read Judith Butler in graduate school when I was doing the gender master's degree, gender theory. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't like that. I didn't like how ruthlessly deconstructive she was, right? I didn't like the idea of female not being meaningful, right? Like that, that really, this is like a, it's all a game. It's all. Yeah. Or that that this is actually a harmful idea that we need to actively deconstruct. I did think her, her idea of performativity was interesting. Um, You know, there is something to that. There is something to the idea that we unconsciously embody and enact social scripts related to gender that I'm sure is true, but I think she takes it to the extent that gender is only that it is only the unconscious embodiment of a social script that creates the illusion of an essence. Whereas I want to say, no, there's a there, there, mm-hmm. like you can, you know, there's something yeah. real that's being expressed. Whereas Butler's like, no, it's just the expression that's real. So um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I not I, even yeah. real, just interpreted as real. Exactly. <laughs> real. I mean, real and air quotes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I actually had a dream about Judith Butler last night. I've had a couple of dreams about her and like, it's, she's always fun to hang out with. She's just super chill. Like, we were, we were like sharing a recliner and like reading books and like talking about books. Oh, <laughs> isn't that weird? I'm like, I don't know what that's about. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So maybe it's like, you know, I, I, it's funny. Like I disagree with Butler, but I don't feel like a sense of animus toward her or anything, but um it's so funny when I have these random dreams about her. I'm like, what is what is the deal? Like, what does she represent in my subconscious? I don't know. That's just fascinating. I wonder what she And the recliner. Say. What does the recliner mean? I'm reading the books. Um, maybe it was some sort of prep for this conversation. Um, in some yeah, maybe. Way. I mean, I, I am talking about her a lot. <laughs> Let's be clear. You know, yeah. if you talk about gender, you talk about Beller. Yeah. I... We, I, I want to go back to the biography, but I just um, just wanted to plug 
I, I do think that there is a there there with gender and uh, what I'm trying to, I'm trying to conceptualize and I'm using as my foil gender critical radical feminism. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think gender critical radical feminism is entirely mapped out yet. I think it's more of a, it's kind of a club of people just kind of basically mm-hmm. trying to deconstruct. I appreciate your formula gender, gender paradigm. They're, they're trying to mm-hmm. save women's sports. They're trying to save the mm-hmm. definition of woman. But when they define woman, it's adult, human, female. It's mm-hmm. like, well, no, there's not, there's a woman there. There's something about woman. If we call adult, human, female, if we say that a woman is an adult, human, female, why would you be mad that we're calling her a cervix haver or a menstruator? Like there's this, mm-hmm. they want to have, they want to criticize the cake and have it too. It seems like, so I'm trying to like hmm. figure out how to describe woman and man in a way that is holistic. And I yeah. think that you have some clues in what you're bringing up with personhood. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, even though it's a little dangerous, I like using flirtation as like mm-hmm. a basic kind of like understanding. This is a fun kind of field uh, to mm-hmm. navigate and negotiate and test each other and become mm-hmm. de-anonymized, not just intimate, but de-anonymized through some sort of playing with gender roles. So maybe I can even mm-hmm. incorporate Butler at some point. But I just wanted to say that I think we're kind of on the same page, or you're very much helping me in trying to conceptualize these these matters. But Catholicism. So <laughs> Catholicism, <laughs> question mark. Yeah. So it's such a weird story. I still don't, I still can't even, I look back, I'm like, what the heck for me? Like the only way to explain it is literally just God kind of like shooting me with an arrow Okay. and being like, you're, you know, you're going to be Catholic. Okay. But, um, but where did that arrow come from? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, a, like so, a stained glass window that you're, did you trip? on like some sort of sprinkler and there was like a Eucharist <sighs> wafer there. You're like, what? <laughs> okay. So my twenties, postmodern feminism, that was my religion toward the end of my twenties. Um, several, I guess I had escalating crises that sort of converged into this perfect storm. The result of which was my Catholicization. <laughs> uh, so hmm. one of those was, an escalating spiritual crisis, right? Because I was still, I was, I was still trying to hold on to this like very nominal, like contentless Christianity. Um, and Why? I was working it in because it was a good framework. It was just the background, right? I mean, I think, like I mentioned before, you know, I think I've always had kind of a an attention to um, spirituality and religion. And like, I had a hunger, I had a hunger for deeper meaning and the sacred. That's a great way to put it. I had a hunger for the sacred. And I, there were things about Christianity I thought were very beautiful, especially the idea of incarnation, but that's the problem. I thought of it as only an idea, even though incarnation itself is an idea that (laughs) signals something that is more than an idea I embodied. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, so I basically came to, I, I, so I had been living in cognitive dissonance for a long time. And I basically came to, that came to a head where I was like, kind of had a like shit or get off the pot moment. You know, it's like, look, either I'm, either I'm going to, either I'm a Christian and I need to take that seriously 
and maybe, I don't know, pray once in a while or like practice it in some way. So how, or, how did you, what was, what was precipitating this? Like, was it, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Was like anxiety, mounting anxiety? Was it like a um, disassociation from reality? Like what, what was the no, it wasn't that intense. pressure? Was there a pressure? On it, or was it just like you? You just kept on like your brain was like, I'm using this formula, but I'm not using this formula, kind of. Like. So, I mean, I think what was bringing the pressure was the fact that I was teaching at a Christian institution. Okay. So I was at a Christian university where you know you're supposed to be like spiritually forming your students, and here I have like no meaningful spiritual life to talk to to speak of, and that means that I'm going to be kind of phoning it in even sort of not outright lying, but at least like fudging it, you know, and eventually I just became really uncomfortable with that. So I, I kind of was like, look, I can't. And so I thought I need to look for other jobs. Right. So I was like, I want to apply to other jobs because I don't really know if I'm a Christian or not. I need to figure this out. Right. I've just been kind of, I've been straddling the fence for too long. I need to figure this out. I either need to be honest with myself and be a good agnostic, or I need to like actually try and you know, have a real faith life. So, and then at the same time, in the same kind of period of my life, I became a mother for the first time. And that really rocked my world. Um, namely, it kind of began to disrupt my very like tidy and closed feminist worldview. Um, because part of it was, um, the experience of pregnancy. And I had an ultrasound pretty early because there was something wrong with the cord. And so I had an ultrasound at the 12th week, which you normally don't. And it's a great time to have an ultrasound because the baby's small enough that you can see the whole body on the screen, not just like, oh, there's a leg, I guess, you know, it's like the whole, but, and it was like, it didn't look like a weird fish creature. It was like a freaking baby, like gorgeous baby. You could see his brain. It looked like cauliflower, you know, and he was just like, he was sucking his thumb. He was kicking. He was just like going all over the place. It was like, and it, that shocked me because it was only, it was in the first trimester. This was 12 weeks, first trimester. And I just thought like, you know, I just couldn't unsee that, you know, and that happened to coincide with um, Wendy Davis's uh, protest in the Texas legislature about abortion at the time it was a big news story and so what was the um, content of that briefly i don't really remember okay. except that there was pro some, or anti she, or something? she was yeah so she's a pro-choice politician she was filibustering some kind of bill and so i was you know like i was on twitter at the time and like um watching all this like feminist commentary on it you know and then all of a sudden it was the kind of like tweet your abortion thing and mm. And there was a, a writer that I followed who I think she tweeted something like, oh, I feel left out because I haven't had an abortion, you know, and I and I just think like that that just like left me cold in a way like I couldn't again, I think I'd been, you know, living in a little bit of cognitive dissonance of like, mm -hmm. yes, I'm a good feminist. I'm pro-choice, pro-abortion. And yet, like I'm confronted with the very real and very alive humanity of my first trimester kid, you know? Um, and, you know, and then I gave birth to a son, which I, I think when I first became pregnant, I was like, Oh, it'll be a girl and I'll name her Gloria Steinem. You know, it'll be great. <laughs> and then like, you know, once I was the mother to a son, I was like, I just became interested in the male experience in a way that I hadn't, you know, I mean, I think the experience of motherhood pulls you out of yourself. And if I'm honest, I think my feminism 
my feminist worldview was a little solipsistic. It was a little bit like narrowly focused on issues that only affected women and mm. women who looked like me, you know? So, um, now it wasn't like I suddenly went like full tread anti-feminist or anything, but it was just enough to kind of disrupt, um, I guess my, I think I'd become an, an ideologue and that I began to ask questions that I hadn't asked before. I also like weirdly, this is kind of a side thing that you'd be interested in um, just because of what you do. But this was back in like 2013 and I used to have this blog and, um, and there was one post I I wrote and I was also writing for the Atlantic online. And I I wrote several pieces on sexual violence, uh, male victims of sexual violence. And for some reason that got me on the radar of some men's rights activists. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I had this really interesting email correspondence with one of them, actually several of them. And one of, you know, one of them, for example, who had like um, kind of posted some mean stuff. And then I kind of clarified something he said. And then he, then all of a sudden he was like really nice. And he was like, I'm sorry, I just was venting. And he's, then it turns out he's like a victim of child sexual abuse. And he's just so frustrated because there's like no resources for male victims of sexual violence. It's all, you know, kind of caught up in this simplistic narrative about only, you know, women are victims and men are predators. And, Mm -hmm. and so these just, I think recognizing the humanity of people who I had really seen as subhuman was also something that I just, my world was opening up a bit. Um, So that was, that was another kind of the, um, the movements that were, that were happening. And then in that situation, I just kind of very quickly became Catholic Um, still. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. There's not like this easy answer, but like, I wasn't going to mass. I didn't know any Catholics. I don't have Catholics in my family. Like I don't get it now, but I still had my, I still had some feminist objections for sure. Um, Contraception. The abortion one was actually easier to let go of. I think because in some ways I had never really fully, you know, believed that that was just totally morally neutral or even laudatory. So, um, but the sexuality and marriage stuff was hard for me. That was the hardest thing to let go of um, or to have my, to kind of change my perspective. about. And by sexuality and marriage, you mean um, heterosexual, heteronormativity in the words of uh, academic feminism and monogamy, like those two things as pillars or as the ideal or as the only way, like, What's the objection? So basically, basically the um, the understanding that that sexual difference is integral to marriage, that marriage is actually a response to the reality of sexual difference and its life giving potential, like that. So yeah, I mean, you could put the the, the heteronormativity stamp on that if you, if you want to. Mm. Um, but I think that that was. Because I, you know, I, I had I had kind of a view of marriage that I think a lot of people in our culture do, which is just, you know, it's kind of a romantic union, you know, a committed romantic union between two adults and mm-hmm. end of story. Maybe you have kids, maybe you don't, whatever, it's up to you. Um, so to kind of see it, to see marriage as actually connected to how we participate in the transmission of human existence, that was a big shift um, because it's just a very different understanding of marriage. Um, in terms of what it is and what its purpose is. Yeah. 
and that has ramifications for, I mean, I was married. Right. So I was like, okay, like, how do I, how do I live this out? Like, how do I apply this to my own life? You know? And so there were some adjustments that had to be made. <laughs> <laughs> Someday um, your, your yeah. dude's, your dude's going to write a book about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's such a good sport. 